coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast brought to you by our great friends at MyBookie. I hope you guys have already taken advantage of our promo code with MyBookie and opened the 2023 college ball season in style this weekend. I had to sweat out a few, but overall, it was a winning weekend. And when you're talking about the first week of games, when you don't really know until you know, I'll take it. But if you haven't already taken advantage of the deal, again, it's very simple, guys. Go to mybookie.ag and all new users, when you sign up for a brand new account, if you use that promo code, you'll get a 50% deposit bonus on that first deposit. Again, it's promo code UGA at mybookie.ag. Take advantage of it now while it still lasts. But all right, guys, I am your host, Tyler, and I'm actually flying solo today. You guys know Curtis usually joins me each and every week following the game for these recap episodes, and that's going to be no different this year. It's only different today because he is celebrating his wife's birthday and has a birthday dinner, birthday celebration, all that stuff. He was in town in Athens for the game last night, had to go all the way back home today, and of course, has to be a good husband. So that's where he is right now, but this is a one-week thing. He will be back on these recap episodes each and every week moving forward. But today, I am here to recap Georgia's 48-7 season opening win over the Tennessee Martin Skyhawks. And trust me, guys, you know what I'm about to do. I'm going to break down this game from every angle. But first, just humor me here. I have a little something to get off my chest. And I'm not speaking to all of you. Heck, I might not be speaking to any of you who actually listen to this podcast And honestly, I don't even know how much of the actual Georgia fan base really feels this way, but I can say this, being in Sanford Stadium last night, I don't speak for the entire Georgia fan base, I don't have my finger on the pulse of every Georgia fan in America, that's not how this works, but in my experience, being in Sanford Stadium last night, being downtown afterwards, perusing social media during and after the game, there is at the very least a vocal minority out there who is freaking out over the results of yesterday's game. And really, not so much the results, but how the game went, at least the first half. The way it ended certainly did soften some of that criticism. But there were people in the stands last night, at least around me, absolutely losing their minds. Losing their minds about anything and everything. With, of course, Mike Bobo being the target du jour. But there's also Carson Beck. He's not good enough. They're running all over us. Three-peat, we'll be lucky to win eight games. And look, you always get some of that anytime you go to a college football game, but it was over the top last night. And social media and message boards following any Georgia game, especially games that don't go exactly how fans want them to at the outset, those are always toxic wastelands. So again, it's not necessarily anything new. I just felt like it got a little out of hand at times last night. So to any of you who may still feel that way, of course you are entitled to feel however you want to. But I would strongly encourage you to just take a few deep breaths and calm down. It's going to be okay. Now, I'm not telling you to entirely dismiss everything you saw. Of course not. There were some things, clearly, that need to get cleaned up. And some things that I was certainly not thrilled with myself, as I will detail throughout the rest of this episode. But drawing big picture conclusions about this team and even individual players and coaches solely from that game, to me... That's pretty foolhardy. And I get it, guys. I totally get it. 
We are all diehard Georgia fans. That's why you're listening to this podcast. That's why I do this podcast. We all love the University of Georgia. We are all passionate about it. It means a lot to us. And sometimes in the moment, those passions are going to come out. That's going to happen. I get that. I love that about college football. I love the passion of the fan bases. That's what makes college football special and unique to me. I love that. So I understand that those passions might come out. But I hope for those of you that might have experienced something to that effect last night, I hope the benefit of time has somewhat calmed most of those frustrations, but for those of you that it has not, those of you who are still fired up over what you saw last night, again, I appreciate and respect your passion, but I just beg you to participate in a little exercise with me here. Just give this a shot. Let's take a look at a couple of blind resumes. I've got two games here, two different games from two different seasons. And I'm just going to go through some of the statistics here. Not all of them because that'll take forever and that's boring. I'm just going to give you a couple, just a smattering of the stats from two different Georgia football games. All right. Game number one, total offense, 479 yards for Georgia. Yards per play offense, 6.4 yards per play. Starting quarterback numbers, 24 34 for 300 yards, one touchdown, zero interceptions. Rushing numbers, 32 total rushes for 127 yards, four yards per carry. Defensively, 128 total yards allowed, which came out to three yards per play. That's game number one. Again, 479 yards total offense, 6.4 yards per play on offense, 24 34, 300 yards, one touchdown, zero picks. Rushing, 32 carries, 127, four yards per carry, 128 yards allowed on defense and three yards per play allowed. Game number two, total offense for Georgia, 559 yards, yards per play, eight. Starting quarterback numbers, 21 of 31, 294, one touchdown, zero interceptions. Rushing numbers, 30 total rushes for 159 yards, 5.3 yards per carry, total defense, 260 yards allowed, yards per play allowed, 4.1. Let me ask you guys, which one of those games, game number one, or game number two, would you say was the better performance? Especially from an offensive standpoint, which is really why people are freaking out right now. Which one would you say? Which one would you say was the better performance? If you're being honest with yourself, you would say that game number two was the better offensive performance. Well, let's do the grand reveal here. Game number one, and I'm sure most of you have already figured out where I'm going with this right now, but in case you're still trying to catch up, game number one was Game two of the 2022 season against the Samford Bulldogs. Game two was the game last night against UT Martin. Across the board, the offensive numbers last night were superior to our offensive numbers against Samford last season, another FCS opponent. Was anyone freaking out last year after the Samford game? Were they? I don't remember that. I remember people being a little frustrated at times in the, inside the stadium, but no one was freaking out. It was sloppy. It was frustrating, but no one was screaming, the sky is falling after that performance, at least not from what I observe. Again, I don't see everything, but in my world, I did not see or hear really any of that. So why not? Why weren't people freaking out then? What's the difference here? Well, it's pretty clear. The difference was last season, prior to that Samford game, we had proof of concept of what that offense could be and what that team could be when we played Oregon in week one. It's that simple. And also, we had proof of concept that the combination of Stetson Bennett and Todd Munkin could win a national championship dating back to the previous season. We simply had that proof of concept. This season, 
We don't have proof of concept. We don't know if Carson Beck is a championship caliber quarterback. We don't know if Mike Bobo is a championship caliber offensive corner. And there are a lot of people in the Georgia fan base who are already firmly convinced that he is not. And they were very vocal about that last night. But that's why people were not freaking out against Samford, our last game as an FCS opponent last year. And they freaked out more so in this game because we just simply don't have that proof of concept that we had. I mean, you've come, remember last year we come up that Oregon game where we just steamrolled Oregon. Everyone's like, oh my God, Georgia's clearly the best team in the country once again. And then Sanford's, oh yeah, it's a natural letdown. You know, it's going to happen. It's no big deal. Well, we didn't have that Oregon game week one. We had this game against UT Martin. So now everyone's like, well, like, is this just who we are? But again, going back to those two games, the whole blind resume exercise, we played in my opinion, more poorly against Samford than we did against UT Martin last night, at least on offense. Now, defensively, there were some issues at times, which we'll, which we'll get to, but we played more poorly on offense against Samford last year than we did yesterday, and that was with Stetson Bennett, who had had a full year of starting experience under his belt and some change on top of that, and Todd Munkin, who we, we all love, of course. So I'm not telling you that there are not things that we need to improve on. There are. I am locked and loaded with that. That's coming up later on in the show. And again, you can feel however you want to feel. I have no right to tell you how to feel. You can have your opinion. I have my opinion. I just happen to have this microphone in front of me, so I get to share my opinion to all of you out there. All I am saying is that I would encourage you before you lose your mind. Again, if you want to lose your mind, lose your mind. That is your prerogative. But before you do that, I would encourage you to just consider the context of the game, the situation that we entered this season in compared to the context and the situation in which we entered the 2022 season with. I know for a lot of people out there, context doesn't matter because you think oh, it's UT Martin, so we, we should just line up and steamroll them no matter what. Context shouldn't matter, but it, it kind of does, at least to me. I mean, think about it. We had two starting wide receivers not playing in that game. We only had one running back playing last night that ever taken one meaningful snap at the college level in his life, and that's Kendall Milton. He wasn't really 100% at all, and he started tightening up as, as the game went on and really couldn't carry the football. Kirby was pretty open about that in his post-game press conference. On top of that, you have a brand-new quarterback who's been around for a long time, but he's still making his first collegiate start. There's naturally going to be some nerves associated with that. There's tons of new faces that were rolling in and out liberally on defense. We have an all-SEC inside linebacker in Smile Munden playing, but only playing a bit role on third-down packages, not playing on standard downs. So he played just a handful of snaps, and he wasn't fully healthy even when he was out there. There. And you also have Kirby in his post-game press conference, if you guys listen to that, openly talking about how we were trying to limit how much we used Brock Bowers, who is clearly not only the best weapon on our entire team, but perhaps the best weapon in all of college ball, certainly in that conversation. And obviously the primary object of any game, as we know, is to win. That's why we play the games. But that was never in doubt. It was There was never a moment in that game where it was like, oh my God, are we going to lose this game? This was not a nickel state game. That's not what was happening here. We were using this game. If you listen to Kirby's post-game press conference and just and even just watched it and just saw his demeanor, he was calm, man. Like it was clear from what he was saying and how he delivered what he was saying. We were using this game as a way to figure out who we are on offense, especially. What is our offensive identity? Again, we have a lot of new faces and a lot of guys that weren't playing. We, we, we were trying to figure out who are our best playmakers? Who are we going to be able to rely on? We were trying to get some young guys experience to say, hey, are these guys that can actually make plays for us this year? And the guys that we are already convinced can make plays for us, we wanted him to work out the nerves, take care of all those things, those nerves. So when you hit conference play in a couple weeks in South Carolina, we are rolling. You don't have to worry about those kind of things. Again, I'm not trying to tell you 
that this was sunshine and rainbows, that we should just be so thrilled with everything that we saw. That's not the case. It was not always pretty. It was sloppy even at times throughout the game. And I was even shaking my head more than a few times in the stands. Absolutely, I was. But now that I've had 24 hours to sit back, think about it, digest it, actually rewatch the game again, it always feels different in the moment. It always does. You guys know how it is. Like even when you're watching on TV, the first time you're not able to go back and like really dissect it with a fine tooth comb and rewind and really dive into things, like you just have a certain perception of things. You go back and do the actual rewatch, and oh, you feel a lot better. And that's not always the case, but it certainly was the case for me when it comes to this game. So again, deep breaths. You may ultimately end up being right. Those of you who are freaking out, you may end up being right. Maybe this team doesn't have what it takes to pull off the three-peat. Maybe that's the case. All I'm saying is I'd be very careful about drawing those hard and fast conclusions solely after this game. A game like this against an opponent like that, considering the context and the situation. So now is the time where I am going to take a step down from my soapbox, and I'm going to remind you guys about our great friends at my bookie. Football is 100% officially back, and so is winning season at my bookie. College football is 100% back. NFL is on its way back. Major League Baseball is still going on. And my bookie is rolling out a brand new cash out system this season that gives you options to bet and win all season long. I actually made use of that last night. I uh, I had a, a four-leg parlay. My last leg was the UTSA-Houston game. And you guys know I put UTSA on my card, but that was a game I was like, eh, I'm not a 1,000% confident there. I hit the first couple legs. The only game I had left was that UTSA game. It was a two-point spread. It's a tight game. It could go gone either way, obviously, with a two-point spread. So what did I do? I cashed out, man. I went in and cashed out. I took my money, and I lived to fight another day. And actually, glad I did, because UTSA ended up losing that game. Tight game, but lost 17-14. So use that early cash out option to stay in control of the action at MyBookie. It's so simple to get started, guys. Go to MyBookie.ag right now. You can always come back, press pause, come back to the podcast, and register for a completely free account. And when you're ready to make that first deposit, just use our exclusive promo code UGA to grab a 50% welcome bonus on the house. Again, that's promo code UGA to claim your 50% deposit bonus. And also for a limited time, a free ship to use in the MyBookie Casino. So bet anything, anytime, anywhere, only with MyBookie. All right, guys, let's get into the good, the bad, and the ugly here. And I'm just going to break this down. With Curtis, obviously, we would do this a little bit of a different way, but I'm going to break it down today, which is things I like, things I didn't like. Now, maybe I'm just a cup half full kind of guy. I can own that. I admit that. Guilty as charged. But I do have far more items, far more bullet points here on my list of things I liked coming out of last night's game than I do my list of things I did not like. I know some of you might disagree with that, but we'll we'll lay it all out here. So let's start with the good stuff. We'll get to the bad stuff later. I don't want to start with that stuff. I don't want to start the season off with those kind of vibes. Let's talk about the good stuff. And at the very top of my list, I did not come into Saturday's game thinking that he was going to be the top of my list on this episode. But how can he not be? Makai Muse, player of the game. Unbelievable. This is the guy we talked about, was it last week? So I think one of the questions I got was, who are some guys that you think might be some under-the-radar breakout-type players? And Makai Muse is one of the guys that I mentioned because he's just one of those guys, a lot like Dejan Edwards, who just has this knack for making plays. He's been overlooked. He's been undervalued, underrated because of his size and his recruiting profile or lack thereof. But this guy just goes to work. And when he gets opportunities, he makes plays. He's on the scout team all of his career up to this point, but just kept popping up time and time again on the tape over and over again. And eventually, you got to stand up and take notice. Same thing with Stetson Bennett, right? And Makai Muse 
is absolutely not just making our coaches stand and take notice. He's making the entire SEC stand up and take notice. This guy is going to be a big-time player for us all season long. The return game, obviously. We saw what he's able to do with the screen game. And it's so fun to watch this guy run because he's putting every ounce of anything he has in his body into this. Like, he's moving his body so vigorously as he's trying to run. Honestly, if you talk to people who, like, run for a living and, and people who actually train elite runners, you're not supposed to be moving your body that much. It's wasted energy, but it doesn't matter. It works for this guy, and he is an absolute spark plug out there on the field. And again, he just has a knack for making plays, a knack to get open. And when he gets open, you get this guy in space, watch out. And I know this is only one game. And I told you guys not to overreact to the, to the negative stuff. And if I say that, you should probably not overreact to the positive stuff either. But so I'm going to try my best to refrain from doing that. But something tells me that very quickly, very short order, this is going to go from being a fun, good, heartwarming story to being, oh, this guy is a legit SEC playmaker. I don't think what he did in the spring game was a fluke. I don't think what you saw yesterday was a fluke. And some people might say it is at some point. It's going to stop being a fluke, right? When the guy just keeps doing it over and over again. Now, it's still very small sample size. So that's why I'm trying to I'm trying to resist going too far overboard with this. But again, from when I when I see this guy play, all I've seen him do is make plays. And right now, based on what I've seen, I have every reason to believe that he is going to be a fixture in our offense this season. And he is going to help us win football games, just like he did last night. All right, second thing I want to talk about here, and now maybe some of you might disagree with this, at least, again, the people in the stands, at least in the first half, had a lot of people that certainly would disagree with me on this. I thought Carson Beck played well, man. I really did. Was he perfect? No, absolutely not. But considering the context, again, first start, there were clearly some nerves, as he admitted after the game in a press conference, I thought he did a lot of really good things. And I've been seeing all over social media today and all over message boards, some people talking about how Carson Beck was like gun shy and just didn't want to pull the trigger. I don't know if we were watching the same game. I I don't think that was the case based on my rewatching of the game, being there in the stadium and watching it today. Did he take some checkdowns? Yeah, he did. But does that mean he was scared to take shots and he was gun shy? Not at all. The vast majority of those checkdowns he took were 1000% the right play. And I'll give you one case in point. I'm working on a video for this week's game, trying to put together some plays and some sequences, kind of give you guys some insight into the game. And I'll just give you one of the sequences right here that I think is a really strong indication of why Bet's willingness to take those checkdowns is a strength of his. So this is the last drive right before the half. We're up 14-0. We're trying to go up 21-0 before the half. We're kind of in the two-minute drill. I think we get the ball back with just a hair over two minutes on the clock in the second quarter. And we get down to the UT Martin 40-yard line. I think there's like 33 seconds left. And Beck hits Cash Jones with a little check down, and Cash takes it for 12 yards, picks up the first down. And again, in the stands, I vividly remember after that play, people in the stands, at least one guy in particular, screaming, that's not going to get done, there's only 30 seconds left. Well, let me paint the picture here. What was UT Martin doing on that drive up to that point? Really, what were they doing for large chunks of the first half up to that point? They were playing a very, very soft two high safety shell. They were playing a lot of quarters coverage, and they were clearly, especially in that moment on that drive, that two-minute drive, they were trying to keep the ball in front of them and limit the explosive plays. They knew that they didn't have the dudes to match up with our receivers and man coverage consistently. They knew that. So what do you do when that's the case? You play soft, and you try to force them into mistakes, and you break on the ball, and you try to tackle the guys before they get to a first down. I mean, that's all you can really do, right? So they were doing a lot of that. A lot of young quarterbacks, and Carson's not really young, but he's inexperienced, young, inexperienced quarterbacks. 
in those situations, they'll try to force the football, especially when it's a, a two-minute drill situation. You're trying to go down and score right before the half, and your offense hasn't really been hitting on all cylinders, and you're trying to make something happen before the half. Uh, most quarterbacks, young, inexperienced quarterbacks in that situation are going to try to force the ball. At least a lot of them are going to try to force the ball. Carson did not fall into that trap. He took the checkdowns when it was the right play. And what did that do? What did that do? That one play, which again, it's just this one sequence, but what did that do? Beck's willingness to take that check down and hurt UT Martin to pick up that first down with a 12-yard little check down to Cash Jones, that convinced UT Martin that they had to switch it up. In the very next play, they go to more aggressive man coverage and try to dial up a little pressure on Beck and not let him just sit back there and carve him up with these check downs. And then what happens there? Beck hits Dominic Lovett for a 25-yard gain down to the UT Martin three-yard line. We would not have had the opportunity to hit a play like that if Beck was not first off willing to take the checkdowns and take what the defense was giving him with that soft shell. His willingness to do that is what created the one-on-one man coverage opportunity that we were able to exploit and get the ball down to the three-yard line, which we should have punched it in from there. We didn't, but we gave ourselves an opportunity to do so. So I love the fact that Carson is taking those checkdowns when it's the right play. I know it's not sexy, and some make people in the stands, some people in the stands at least, scream at him, but who cares? It's the right play, and it helps you set up a score. I also thought he was really accurate. There was one throw in the first quarter, I believe it was, where he had Arian streaking down the middle of the field, and Arian had a step or two on the defender, and that probably could have been a touchdown. He just overthrew him a little bit there. I, I would like for him to hit Arian there, but you know that's going to happen from time to time. No quarterback's going to hit 100% of those throws. I know we want them to. When you see a guy running open, you just think, oh, he should automatically hit him. But, you know, sometimes even Stetson, as good as Stetson was, Heisman Trophy violence, by the way, didn't hit all those throws either. There were a couple of miscommunications. There was a miscommunication with Dominic Lovett where it looked like Beck thought Lovett was going to sit down and Lovett kept kind of drifting. And it was a third down and it should have been an easy first down, not just like a, a conversion. It should have been a pretty big play. It was just a quick little in-breaking route, but there was a lot of space there. And if Beck puts it on Lovett, that, that's a pretty big play there. So I would probably put that one on Carson. It looked like he was wrong there. There was no really, there was really no reason for Love to sit down there. There was no defender within sight distance that had inside leverage that would cause him to sit down. So I think that was probably on Carson. But we're nitpicking here. There was one throw that I remember that was inaccurate to Arian Smith. One bad read there. But outside that, I thought he was really accurate. I thought he made good decisions. There was not really a single play that I can remember off the top of my head that he put the ball in harm's way. I thought he got us into the right plays and made some good checks to the line, especially in the run game. And I told you guys a couple weeks ago, Carson is much more of an athlete than people give him credit for. And he put that on full display last night. That touchdown showed a little something I didn't even know. he. I knew he was a good athlete. Not a sense of minute level athlete, but a good athlete. I didn't know he had that kind of shake on that little touchdown run, the little move he put on the defender there to get across the goal line. I didn't even know he had that. So that surprised me. But he picked up another first down with his legs, did a good job extending plays. He moves really well in the pocket in terms of like his pocket mobility. I love the way he slides and shifts in the pocket to avoid pressure, to help create throwing lanes. And he throws exceptionally well on the run. I want to see us do more of that this season. Get this guy on the run, roll the pocket, sprint outs, nakeds, whatever. Get the guy on the move because this guy can absolutely drop dimes when he is on the move. So all in all, not perfect, but for a first start, A first start without two of your starting wide receivers with a lot of inexperience at running back, I thought Carson Beck played really well in that first start. And while we're talking about quarterbacks, I also thought the backup quarterbacks played really well, man. I thought that Brock Vandegrift did some good things in his couple of series. I thought in his one series that Gunnar Stockton did some really good things. Like Kirby said, in Gunner's series, you know, you're playing with the threes. His unit didn't really help him as much as Rock's unit did. But I was impressed with Gunner and his ability to kind of make plays with his legs, escape the pocket, extend plays, keep his eyes downfield. 
That deep ball to Rara Thomas by Brock Vandegrift was an absolute dime. Brock also did some really good things with his legs. So I thought all three quarterbacks, when they got their opportunities, I thought they all three did really good things. And that's very encouraging. I still think clearly to me, I, it's not even a question to me. I know some people, I've seen a few people pose a question like, is Carson still the guy? To me, a thousand percent, absolutely. What did he possibly do last night to remotely put that into question? I think Brock is going to be a really good player. I think that Gunner's going to be a really good player. But I still think that Carson has a pretty comfortable lead on those two guys right now. But I am encouraged for the future. And God forbid, if something happens to Carson Beck, I think we're in pretty good hands with either Brock Vandegrift or Gunnar Stockton. And according to Kirby, it's still very much an open competition there for the number two job. Clearly, Brock coming in before Gunnar getting two series to Gunnar's one. He has the edge right now, but it seems like that's still an open competition, which is kind of par for the course for our program. Uh, sticking with offense, let's go with Brock Bowers for a second. I don't even really need to say anything about Brock Bowers. You know who this guy is, what he's about, but it never ceases to amaze me. This guy never ceases to amaze me. He is special, man. Like He's just a different guy. Not just in terms of like, his athleticism. He's certainly different with his athleticism. He's special and unique there. But the way this guy plays, the effort, the never-say-die attitude, his willingness to fight for every single yard is nothing short of remarkable. I absolutely love this guy. If we don't have Brock Bowers on our team and he doesn't have the willingness to fight for every single yard the way that he does, if he's not built the way that he is, we do not win national championship last year because we don't beat Ohio State. If he does not convert that fourth down where he levitated, I don't think we win that football game. And the stakes clearly weren't as high against UT Martin. But again, that's one of the things that makes Brock Bauer so special. It doesn't matter if it's the Peach Bowl, Coswell Playoff semifinals against Ohio State in a critical moment, or if it's the season opener against an FCS opponent, UT Martin. The dude plays the exact same way, a thousand miles an hour, every single game. He is the standard. He sets the standard, not just for the tight end room, for this offense, for this team. And we are damn lucky to have that man on our team. All right, we've done a lot of offense. Let's go to the defense here. I thought Malachi Starks played really well. He led the team in tackles. I thought he was flying around the field. He was arriving with authority. There's a couple of places he had a, he had a pick. I thought he had a pick there for a minute. And Malachi was great last year. He was just seemed like he was playing with more confidence and playing a little bit faster than he was at times last year. And don't get me wrong, he was playing fast last year. He was he's a great athlete. We understand that, but. I just felt like he was more in tune with what the defense is doing. He's mastered what we want to do defensively. And when that light goes on, you can play faster. You play with reckless abandon, which I think is what we saw from Malachi last night. And I am extraordinarily excited about the kind of season that this guy's going to put together. I think he's going to have an All-American type season. I mean, I know he's preseason All-American, and I think he showed why in that first game on Saturday night. And sticking with the secondary in general, I thought that all of our guys, safeties, corners, Tyke Smith and the star, I thought they did a really good job blanketing the UT Martin receivers for the vast majority of the night. I know there were a couple of PI calls, but even on those calls, our guys were in position. They just have to make better plays in the ball and don't panic like that. And that's one of the reasons you have games like this. Those guys like Dan Everett can kind of get those nerves out and they can make those mistakes and learn from, from them, watch the tape and grow from those mistakes. But there was no room for those UT Martin receivers. And there shouldn't have been. I get that. FCS opponent. But... When you're working a couple different guys in that corner spot, obviously Dalen Everett, which kind of surprised me that he got the start there. Everything I was hearing leading up to the game and those couple of weeks leading up to the game was that it was going to be Julio Humphrey. And Humphrey played with the ones. He got some run. He got some reps. But it was Dalen Everett. And I, I shouldn't say that completely takes me by surprise because I did predict him to be the starter going back to the beginning of fall camp when we were doing our, our position battles predictions. But it looked like Humphrey was going to be that guy. In the scrimmages, he, he had performed really well. And everything that I was getting coming out of the scrimmages is that he was kind of taking that job. 
but it looks like Everett was able to hold him off and end up winning that job, but I think that's competition that's going to be ongoing throughout the rest, at least the next couple of games. I don't want to say the rest of the season, but maybe it'll carry on through the first couple of games of the year, but right now, Dalen Everett, got, he's that guy. I thought he played well. I thought Humphrey played well, and he got some opportunities as well. I know Kamari had the one PI call on, on him, but I thought he played really well because we know what Kamari is. The guy's an awesome corner. He's going to be really good for us all year long. The safety's covered well, and I want to give Tyke Smith some love here, man. I, I was pretty open throughout the past month or so saying I, I think there's a good chance that Janelle Aguero, big-time freshman, five-star freshman from Massachusetts, could take over that job from Tykee at the star position, maybe even sooner rather than later. I might have to back off that a little bit. Again, I don't want to draw too many definitive conclusions off of one game, but I was impressed with what I saw from Tykee Smith. I thought he was playing fast. I thought he was playing physical. He did, some, he did a really good job on the perimeter, fighting off blocks and making tackles in the screen game, the perimeter run game. I was very impressed with what I saw from Tykee Smith. I still don't think he has the physical ceiling that Aguero has, but he certainly has the experiential edge by a wide margin. And if he keeps playing like that, it doesn't matter what the the physical gap between the two is. Tyke Smith is going to make it really hard to get him off the field. Uh, let's go back to the offense. C.J. Smith, a guy who really didn't play much at all, didn't, certainly didn't play any meaningful snaps last year as a freshman. He played a fair amount in this game. Obviously, with two starters out, he got moved up the depth chart and found himself in that rotation and played a, a lot last night. And he only had two catches, but I thought they were both impressive plays. One was a, like a little screenplay where he just ran over two defenders and showed some physicality there. And you know Kirby Smart loves that from a receiver. Another one was a big game. It was a 40-plus yard gain down the side know, off a of play action. And he's a guy that has elite speed. He's a big-time track guy coming out of high school like Arian Smith was. Now, not quite as fast as Arian Smith, but the dude can move. And he showed it on that long reception off that play action pass. And I'm excited about him. I had heard a few whispers through camp that he was making some plays, but I hadn't heard that he was going to be a big factor in the offense because, I mean, maybe he won't because, we again, we have two starters out, and once those guys get back, they will. When Marcus shows me Jack St. and Lad McConkey, he probably is not going to see as many opportunities. But if he keeps making plays when he does get opportunities, it's like, it's like Makai Muse. When you keep making plays when you get opportunities, you're going to get more opportunities. That's how these things work. And Kirby was pretty effusive in his praise for C.J. Smith in that postgame press conference. So something tells me... We might see more of C.J. Smith this season than maybe we thought coming into the year. And the last thing on my list of things I liked, I'm going to go the offensive line here in their pass blocking. I'm about to rip those guys for their run blocking in just a moment, but I do want to give them some props and their ability to protect Carson Beck. They did a great job there. Most of our starters graded out above 80 in their pass blocking grade according to Pro Football Focus. Xavier Truss at 87.6, Tate Rattledge 87.6, Mims 85.2, SVP 81. And then you got Ernest Green at 72.4. He was the lone starter that was below an 80. So I thought he did a really good job. Carson had a really clean pocket for the majority of the game. That's one of the reasons why I think he did play well. That certainly helps. And that goes back to last year. Offensive line in pass protection situations was absolutely elite. Single-digit sacks given up on the year. And it doesn't look like that is going to change this year. I know, again, it's small sample size. You don't want to draw too many definitive conclusions. But if you base off what you also saw last year, you have four returning stars, it stands to reason that Carson Beck will have a lot of time to throw the football down the field this season. So that is my list of things I liked. And in just a moment, I'm going to turn over to the other side and talk about the things I didn't like as much. But first, I do want to remind you about our good friends at Alumni Hall. And I got to give you guys some props. I know a lot of you Stopped in at Alumni Hall inside the Edgebridge Shopping Center on your way into Athens for the game this weekend. Because I got word that there were two lines out the door the morning of the game. So you guys were doing some work. I appreciate you. Alumni Hall appreciates you. And of course, why wouldn't you go to Alumni Hall? It is a Georgia fan's paradise. 
Whatever brand you like, whatever style you prefer, whatever you're looking for, Alumni Hall is going to have you covered. They have the best selection of vintage Georgia gear that you're going to find anywhere, which is one of the things that I love about Alumni Hall because I am an absolute sucker for our vintage logos, and Alumni Hall always hooks me up. So if you weren't able to check out Alumni Hall this weekend, if you're coming in town for the game next weekend, make sure you stop by inside the Edgebridge Shopping Center or online. If you're not able to come into Athens, check them out online at alumnihall.com. They have all the same great gear online as they do in the store. So check them out because Alumni Hall is where the Bulldog shop. All right, guys, I hate to do this. I don't take any pleasure in ripping our players and looking at the negatives, but we got a job to do. We got to be objective here. There were a lot of things that I liked, and that list was certainly longer than things that I do not like coming out of that first game against UT Martin, but there are some things we got to talk about. So let's start with the offensive line. I just gave them some props for their ability to protect Carson Beck. Did a really great job there with a pass pro. Run blocking, not as much. And it's really hard to pinpoint what was going on there. Now, maybe it's one of those things where it's an overmatched opponent, so there's not a, as much energy. The juices aren't flowing that way. A, you're more lethargic. Maybe that's part of what you saw, but it's game one. How can that be the case in game one? But that's, that is how these things tend to work sometimes, though. So there, that's probably part of it, but I don't care. That's not a good enough excuse. As Kirby likes to say, we have a standard that you're expected to play to. In our offensive line, when it came to blocking in the run game, certainly did not play to that standard. I'm going to go back to the pro football focus grades. And as I always tell you with the PFF grades, guys, take it with a grain of salt. They're not very transparent in how they grade these things, but it's at least a data point to you. So I'm going to throw those out there at you. So check out these run blocking grades. Cedric Van Pran, 68. Amarius Mims, 64. Tate Ratledge, 62.5. Ernest Green, 50.4. Xavier Trust, who had a nightmare of a game, 48.4. And I know those numbers seem kind of extreme, but if you watch the game and watch the offensive line as closely as I did, especially in the rewatch, it kind of checks out. It was a borderline pathetic performance from our offensive line when it came to paving the way for our run game. It was, it was just bad. And it was a combination of things. There were plenty of instances where we weren't getting any push. There was no movement, which when you're playing an FCS opponent like that, which is so physically overmatched from a, you know, just a physical standpoint, that there's no excuse for that. You've got to be able to move them. And look, I know that they were stacking the box for much of that game. I understand that. And that certainly is context that must be considered. There were a number of plays that were stopped at the line of scrimmage, like for one or two yard gains, that were free runners. You can't beat math. When they have more defenders than you have blockers, that's not an offensive line problem. When it, when it is the free runner making the play. So there are plenty of examples where that did happen. And that was one of the things that did frustrate me. I'm going to talk about Mike Bobo in a minute here. I felt like we were running into far too many of those heavy boxes. Almost like it was, it was almost like arrogance of a sort. I don't, I don't know if it was arrogance. I think it was just more one of those things like, okay, look, we, we should be able to run the ball on, the, on this team, on these guys. We want to get these young backs some carries. We want to practice against some of these looks. So when you have six or seven blockers going against eight or nine defenders in the box, or when I say in the box, I'm talking about eight or nine defenders within seven to eight yards line of scrimmage. So they were bringing those safeties up close, man. They were sticking their nose there in the run game. So that certainly did not help. And I don't fault the offensive line when it's a numbers thing. When it's a free runner who we simply don't account for in the run scheme, that's not on the offensive line. But that wasn't everything that was happening. There were plenty of plays where we just, A, weren't getting movement, B, absolutely whiffing, or C, not having any clue who we were supposed to block. Ernest Green, looking at you. And I want to talk about Xavier Truss here for a minute. Truss is a big physical dude. And when he is blocking other big physical dudes in front of him, he plays well. Like he can move those guys. He's a big guy. That's what he does well with. But he's not 
an overly great athlete. So when he is having to block quicker athletes from depth, and what I mean by that is guys who are not standing on the line of scrimmage, like a linebacker or a safety that are sticking their nose there in the gap, when he has to block those guys from depth, he has no chance. Like they just maneuver around him and he kind of just falls over himself. He has got to get better. I know he can play better. He played really well for large chunks of last season, but he did not play well against UT Martin. It's just as simple as that. And it's not that Dylan Fairchild and Micah Morris played all that much better when they got opportunities. And they did, guys. By the way, Dylan Fairchild was in at guard on the second drive of the game. They got real opportunities to play real meaningful snaps for the first time in either one of their careers. So kudos to them. They had great fall camps. I've heard from many different sources throughout the past month or so in fall camp that those guys are really coming on. And Kirby's even said himself that he feels like we have like seven or eight starting caliber players on the offensive line. He sees it that way. And I think we're going to, those guys are going to play. They're going to rotate in a, a lot this year. And again, it wasn't as though that they were perfect and they were all that great, but they were better than Xavier Trust was. And if that's the case for a couple more games, Trust might lose that starting job. I, I'm not ready to call it right now. It's just one game. Again, I don't want to overreact to just one game. But it, that was not pretty for him. It was not a pretty performance. And if that continues on, it's going to open the door for a guy like Dylan Fairchild or Micah Morris. Just keep that in your back pocket. All right, let's go to Mike Bobo here for a minute. Now, I didn't know exactly where to put him on the show because there were a lot of things that we did offensively from a scheme standpoint that I really liked. And there were a couple things that I didn't like as much. So I know a lot of you out there are not Mike Bobo fans. So just to, to, to do you guys a solid, I put Bobo on the list of things I did not like. But I don't feel great about that. Now, here's what I did not like from Mike Bobo. I thought there were a couple of instances where there were some questionable play calls. And I know that's the thing with Bobo, right? People always remember like, there's one play call there, there's one play call here. Every offensive coordinator has a bad play call here or there. Even Todd Munkin had him, guys. I know as much as we love him, as great as he was for us, even Todd Munkin had some bad play calls. No one bats a thousand. But calling that run play from the three-yard line first and goal following that Dominic Lovett reception, with 15 seconds left, right before the half, first and goal, 15 seconds left, calling a run to Cash Jones and getting stuffed for a two-yard loss, I think that's one that Mike Bobo wants to have back. And I think he would tell you that. If you sat down and asked him, I think he'd tell you he'd want that one back. Because that cost us a shot at the end zone. So we had first and goal from the three-yard line. We run the ball on first down. We have to spike the ball on second down because we don't have any timeouts. And then we have to throw the ball on third down and it's an incomplete pass. So we would have had another shot at the end zone if we would not have run the ball there on that first down play with zero timeouts left. Now, I went back and rewatched that play over and over and over again, looking, trying to determine if that was an RPO and that Carson just handed it off maybe when he should have handed it off. But even if it was an RPO, and I don't think that it was, but even if it was, that should never have been called. When you have 15 seconds left, zero timeouts, first and goal, you should have three shots. If you call an RPO and the defense gives you a look to hand it off, the quarterback is coached to hand it off, and that's going to result in a run play. That should, there should never be an option to run the ball in first down. So RPO or not, just a bad call. Don't love that one. And again, every coordinator has a bad call here or there. You just can't have your bad calls be in critical situations like that inside the red zone. Now, it's all sunshine and rainbows against UT Martin. Get away with that. But if you're playing on the road at Auburn in a couple of weeks, you're playing South Carolina in two weeks, you need touchdowns there. Because that, that could have been a 14-point thing for us. So you score a touchdown there, get the ball back to open the second half, score there. That's 14 points where you essentially put the entire game away and it's a very different dynamic the rest of the game. Again, UT Martin doesn't matter because they were never going to win the game. But some of these SEC opponents, if you screw around and have a bad call like that in the red zone, that could cost you a game. I also did not love how we just kept over and over again 
running the ball into those heavy boxes. And I, I know that like, even Munkin would do that too, guys. Like you, oftentimes when you run into heavy boxes like that, if you break it and you get past the line of scrimmage, then you got a big explosive run on your hands. That's like, I think back to the Mississippi State game, Kendall Milton, he broke that one late in the fourth quarter. That's because they had so many guys you know, at the line of scrimmage essentially in the box and he broke past that first wave of defenders and he's off the races. So I get why you do it. But I just felt like we were doing it over and over and over again with very little success without really mixing in much play action to go with. Again, I don't mind you running those boxes from time to time because you can create explosive plays. But you also need to mix that up with some play action. You can get some explosive plays in the passing game from those from those looks as well, which is what we finally did in the second half on that play to C.J. Smith, that 40-plus yard gain. So I didn't necessarily love his approach there, but it wasn't all bad from Bobo. I think one of the things that he gets a lot of grief for is people call him like, this old school play caller who lacks creativity. I've never really thought that was the case, at least going back to you know, the last three or four years while he was our offense coordinator under Mark Rick. And I thought he showed some really creative looks on Saturday night. There was one play in particular off the top of my head. I'm going to try to put this in the video I'm going to make for YouTube where he, uh, he motioned Brock Bowers into the backfield as a running back. And he had Delp as an H-back to the same side as Bowers. And he flared both of them out to the left and it, Obviously, Delp is serving as the lead blocker, and Bowers is getting like a little flare outlet screen pass, and he threw that for a solid game. I thought that was a creative way to get the ball into the hands of, of Brock Bowers. Some of our more explosive run plays, I thought he did a really good job in clearing out the box with motion and creating those light boxes that gave us an, a, a chance to hit some of those explosive run plays, which is always something that he's been very strong with. He's, his run schemes have always been one of his strong suits and how he creates favorable looks to run the ball against. So I thought he did a really good job in that regard last night as well. And I also think he did a good job of managing Carson Beck and giving the guy some easy throws, especially early in the game, to get into a rhythm, to get some confidence, and to kind of build off of that. I love the first down screen call to Makai Muse. I think screens are extraordinarily effective on first down. I think a lot of times, coordinators wait until it's like third third down or it's second and long after a penalty to try to run a screen. Those are obvious screen situations. When you run screens on first down, when defenses aren't really expecting it, they can be lethal, as you saw in that in that play that Muse took for a touchdown. And I know Kirby said that we were trying to limit the amount of touches that Brock Bowers got because, I mean, look, we know what the guy can do. He's also been kind of banged up, and we don't want him to hurt in a game like this. We want to see what these other guys can do, give them a chance to make plays. So we were trying to actively limit how much we had to use Brock in this game. But I did like, you know, when the offense was kind of sputtering a little bit, what did he do? He went to your playmaker. He went, You went to your guy. And he, what did he do? He made plays for you because that's what Brock Bowers does. And I think he's going to do a fantastic job all season long, especially in these more important games. We get to the SEC play here shortly of featuring Brock in a way that is going to maximize what this guy does. That's what that's one of the things I love about Mike Bobo is I think when he has a dude like he does on Brock Bowers, he features that guy. And I think you're going to see that this season. We saw signs of that, even though we were trying to limit how much we use him in, in that first game. So a little up, a little down for Mike Bobo. Some good stuff, some bad stuff. Not all terrible, not all great. But I will say I saw nothing from a scheme standpoint, play calling standpoint in that game to cause me to absolutely lose my mind. There were some frustrating moments again, that run call on the first down play from the three-yard line with 15 seconds left and no timeouts. That was a head-shaking play, a head-shaking play call. But hopefully he'll learn from that and we won't see that kind of play call again moving forward. All right, a couple more things here real quick. I'm going to go to the defense. Our edge discipline was not great. They really could not run the ball between the tackles to save their lives. They really had very little success doing that. There were a few plays here and there, but for the most part, very little success running the ball between the tackles. But they did have a fair amount of success on the edge, especially in the quarterback run game. And it was just basic stuff, guys. It was basic zone read stuff. 
and we just were playing wildly out of control. I mean, there's one play off the top of my head, Terry Ingram Dawkins, I have in my notes here, where he just crashes on the running back just completely recklessly and leaves the edge wide open for the quarterback, just pull it and pick up a big game. There's a play in the first quarter, Chaz Chambliss, who I know we were hard on last year. I'm trying to not be as hard on him this year, but one of the things that I, that was frustrating for me last year with Chaz is, is that he is so willing to close on blockers. Like when I say close, like take on pullers and just blow them up. He does a great job of that. But it's like he does that without any worry at all what's going on around him. Like he when he does things like I'm just I'm gonna blow this guy up and I'm not even gonna try to make a play on the running back. You can do both things at the same time. You can blow a guy up and still also make the play on the running back. Nolan Smith was an expert at doing that. And there was a play, I know it's just one play, but it's just I saw it so often from him last year. It's like, oh my God, here we go again, where he blew up the blocker. He closes on him, on the puller, and the running back is right there for him to wrap up for a loss. And this is not Nolan would do so consistently for us when he was playing, but he just doesn't even see the guy. He just doesn't see him whatsoever. And the back takes the ball around the edge and picks up a nice, solid gain. Those are things that you've got to be better at. And I think those are things that you can improve on, but I need to start seeing more improvement when it comes to that, when it comes to setting the edge on the, against the run there. Like blowing up the puller is one thing. That's that's great. I love your willingness to do that. I love the physicality he plays with. But you also got to make the play. Like the play is there to be made, and you can also make the play. So just do it. But it, w- it was not just Chaz. And that's just one play off the top of my head. I, mean, I mentioned Tyrion Dawkins. Marvin Jones Jr. got caught on one of those plays as well. So it was really all around. We just got to get better in the dis- in, a, in the edge discipline there. And we will. I mean, this is a guy that this quarterback is not traditionally a runner. So we weren't really expecting that. But they clearly felt like they were not going to be able to run the ball between the tackles on us, which, I mean, they were not going to. So they, they knew they had to be able to run the football in some way, somehow. So they felt like running the quarterback was their best option. At least he was like enough of an athlete. And... It, it worked well enough for them. Now, obviously, they only scored one touchdown, didn't score one until late in the game against the backups. But that's something that's got to improve. I do not like the fact that we give over 100 yards rushing to that team. That should never happen. But about half of that was on QB run stuff. And that was just straight up undisciplined play on the edges. That's got to be better. And then the last thing I have here on my list of things I did not like was the drops. I mean, I don't have an exact count right now. I'm going to go back to the second rewatch. I'm going to count those. I should have already done that. I was counting and I lost count and I didn't want to go back and rewind it all the way. So I didn't completely count them. I know that there were at least two big ones that Dominic Lovett had. One would have been a touchdown. I think Arian had one as well. So there are at least three or four at the top of my head. And I think Carson's numbers were really good at the end of the day anyway. 21 of 31, 294, touchdown, no picks. But they would have been even better. He'd been well up over 300 yards. Completion percentage already like what 68% would have been in the mid 70s if it was if it was not for some of those drops. And again, two starting wide receivers out that doesn't help things. And I'm glad some of these other guys got opportunities to play and to grow. But when the plays are there to be made, we got to make those plays. People want to rip the quarterback when they miss an open receiver, and understandably so. But we need to also treat the receivers the same way. When you don't help the quarterback out, and you don't make plays that are there to be made and do what you're supposed to be able to do, which is catch the football. That's got to get better. That's got to improve. We can't keep having that. But outside of that, guys, I really don't feel like there were that many glaring issues. I know maybe it didn't feel that way in the moment when we're only up 17-0 at half, and it's like, oh my God, we should be blowing this team out. But going back and doing the rewatch, I feel really good about this team. I feel much better about the way the game played out and the way that we played than I did there in the moment. Still a lot to improve on. We've got to get better in a lot of areas, but I'm confident that we will. It's one of the hallmarks of Curry Smart teams. I think that we grow and we get better as the season goes on. 
And considering, again, the context, all the young guys that were playing that really hadn't played meaningful snaps before, I mean, all those receivers, a quarterback, the running backs, it's understandable. It honestly probably should have been expected that there were going to be some growing pains in this first game, regardless of who we were playing. So we'll watch the tape. We'll go back to work. We're going to get better. And as far as I'm concerned, again, you can have whatever opinion you want. As far as I'm concerned, I really did not see anything that would lead me to believe that we are not going to be a contender for the national title yet again this season. But all right, guys, that's all I got for today. I actually got to get out of here, man. We got to go watch this Florida State LSU game. So I want to get this in before that game kicked off. So I'm going to run, go watch that game. But I appreciate you guys. Curtis will be back with me, hopefully for a mailbag episode here in a couple of days. So we're going to have the mailbag episode. This week's going to be a little bit different because when you're playing a team like Ball State, I know that you guys do not care about a full game preview, like me breaking down Ball State. Like You do not care about that. I understand that. So instead of having that full-on Ball State Cardinals preview, we're going to do an SEC power rankings episode and we're going to do those a couple times throughout the season we won't do it every week but we'll update it periodically especially when we have games like this where I know that you do not care about me doing a full-on game preview for a team like Ball State so we'll have that for you guys and of course at the end of the week Charlie and I will be back to make our week two picks of the week but I hope you guys had a fantastic football Saturday it was incredible, man. It was incredible just to have football back in the air, back in our lives. And we've got 12 more regular season weeks this and plus whatever we've got in the postseason. So live it up, guys. It's going to go fast. It always does. So enjoy the moment. Enjoy every single second of it. And we will be here with you every step along the way. So thanks again for being here, guys. Always appreciate you. I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs. <laughs>